the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you are listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about something going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. All you need to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Let me begin today with an apology. Yesterday, we were right in the middle of the program, and we lost all connection. We don't know whether it was an internet connection, whether it was on KSLR's end or our end, but we just lost it, and that's why you got a second half of the of a date day show at some point in the future. Um, so we had a couple people on the phones. Uh, Chris from Luling, I think you got cut off just before we went to the break. So uh, if you uh, have questions, uh, please feel free to call, and we think we've got everything fixed, and so we're very, very uh, grateful for for that. So let's get to questions. It's Tuesday. We don't have a lot of stuff going on. Uh, our first question comes from Anonymous, and it's about my Bible study on Sunday. I got this question yesterday. That'll explain. Um, he or she says, in yesterday's study, you said that Satan is God's servant. What did you mean by that? Well, I said that he is God's unwilling servant. Now, the idea here is that God is sovereign and he's in, the con- under, he's in control. I said that Satan is on a leash. Now, it's a long leash at times and it appears like it's very, very long to us. But... Um, Satan, the, the, the little G God of this world, or Paul calls him the prince of the air. Um, he's the one that's wreaking havoc. Now, remember, the amount of damage that he can do is limited by God. He, he's not independent from God, and certainly he wouldn't want to be categorized as a servant of God. He hates God. He wanted to be God. Uh, I will cast my throne above the most high. Um, it's just that he's still accountable to God, and he can't do anything that God doesn't let him do. Now, when I say that he's God's servant, and the Bible uh, refers to that a couple of times, when it, when he's called God's servant, it's just that God is accomplishing his will in spite of the enemy's attacks, in spite of the fact that the enemy hates him and is rebelling against him. So that's all I'm in. It doesn't mean, again, that he wants to serve the Lord. He has no choice. Uh, He's the one who reports for orders, just like everybody else. Now, again, God's given him a big leash. Um, That's going to happen again, by the way, uh, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. The devil is going to be let loose, sort of, God's going to bust him out of jail. 
and and he's going to do that. And again, he will be God's servant. Uh, he will then tempt the people. Remember, in a thousand years, the multiplied billions or even trillions of people that will have been born during the millennial reign, they, they won't have any um, opportunity to rebel against God. At the end of the thousand years, uh, Satan is going to be let loose to give um, the the, the um, people a choice. You know, everybody has to choose God of their own free will. God doesn't make anybody serve him. After the thousand years, they're going to do that. Now, you would think that after a thousand years of of righteous judgment, a thousand years of perfect holiness, um, you know, uh, not not by people in this world, but, but, but on the throne of David in Israel, you'd think that everybody would say, oh, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. And, and that's not true because we're told that the devil is going to deceive people in such a large degree that they're going to be like they're numbered like the grains of sand on the seashore. And that's when everything is going to end. The, the great white throne judgment will happen. The lake of fire uh, will, will uh, be created. And people who reject God, people who are enemies of God, they will be thrown into uh, that outer darkness, that flaming fire um, where they will be weeping and gnashing in teeth forever and ever and ever. So he's God's servant. Uh, he couldn't do anything to Job. He couldn't do anything to Paul without God's permission, without God's approval. Um, now, we would like to think, why would God give him One of the things that we have to understand is that God's sovereign power is such that he uses even his most powerful enemy to accomplish his will. So, Anonymous, that's what I meant when I said that he is God's servant. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Rachel. She asks, why does God allow people to be homeless? Doesn't God love homeless people? Rachel, God loves everybody. That's one of the issues that you've got to settle right away. Now, we've done a lot of ministry with homeless people. They don't love God. God wants to love them. It's sort of like Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It's not that God hates because God is love. But what that means is he couldn't love Esau the way he loved Jacob, so the contrast would make it appear as though I loved one and hated the other. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that God knew that Esau would sell him out for a bowl of stew. God knew that Esau wanted nothing to do with God. In many cases, that's the same way. You know, Rachel, we've tried to help a lot of homeless people. Um, We've given people work to do, uh, in order to get money, we've offered to to, to uh, put them up in hotels. Um, uh, I offered at one point to get them gym membership so they could shower. Uh, we want them to be part of the body, but they had to follow rules. They didn't want to do that. And the reality is there's just a whole bunch of people that don't want to be accountable to anybody for anything. So when you ask the question, why does God allow people to be homeless? He never overrides our personal choices. We have free will. And the people that are living on the streets, believe it or not, by and large, they're living where they want to, in the manner they want to, and even when communities provide outlets for them, safe places, warm places, uh, they don't want to abide by the rules. And so the independence is just, uh, I want to be independent. You know, by the way, Rachel, and this is for everybody else out there, the, the, the idea of rebelling against God is that we want to be independent from God. And that doesn't matter whether you're homeless or you're, or you're wealthy. We want to be independent. We want to make our own choices. We don't want anything to go wrong. We feel like we're entitled to live the way we want without any consequences. And that just never happens. Now, let me also talk more generally about the homeless population and the, the homeless problems that we have in our country now. We have so coddled homeless people, lawbreakers, if you've been to California, you know, Paul and I, we vacation every year in San Diego. San Diego is, in my view, the nicest city in the in the world. I, I just, now I've not been everywhere in the world, but it's just a wonderful place. It's perfect weather. Uh, the beach is right there. You can see water almost everywhere you go. And it's been turned into a homeless encampment all over San Diego. 
It's no longer safe to walk around. Paul and I got on a on a uh, on an elevator going to a, a Padres game, and the smell of urine was so strong that it was impossible for us to stay in there. We've just allowed people to be lawbreakers. And when we allow people to be lawbreakers, their hearts become harder and harder and harder. And the situation gets worse and worse and worse. It's wonderful to have empathy. But here's the reality. We're not really helping them at all. We're we're making their lives worse. Discipline is a good thing. Rules and law is a good thing. The reality, however, is that they just don't want to cooperate. So, yeah, there's a lot of people with mental illness. There's a lot of people who are demon-possessed. Now, the world will never admit to that. And there are answers for those people. And every one of them, just like you, Rachel, and just like me, every one of them can find an answer to the problems that they're experiencing if, in fact, they'll turn to God. The fact that they don't want to turn to God only makes things worse. So I hope that answers your question. God loves everybody, Rachel. He would love nothing more than for the homeless people in this world to say, you know what? Look at the evidence. The the way I'm living is wrong. Because it's wrong, I want to repent. And God would touch them just like he's touched those of us who are believers. Some problems you can't fix. You need laws. And the law has to be enforced. And if you don't, then things get worse and worse and worse. Here's an anonymous question. This one is going to get me in trouble. It always does. Um, Pastor Ron, what are your thoughts on AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and whether or not it's biblically correct? Anonymous, it is in absolutely contradistinction to the Bible. You know, the idea that once an alcoholic or once an addict... Uh, always an alcoholic or always an addict. It's simply antithetical to what the Bible teaches. Our New Testament teaches that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. When the Apostle Paul cried out, speaking about his own personal difficulties with his flesh, what I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. And then he asks this question, who can rescue me from this body of death? And then he said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. But but the problem is, if you're always in bondage, in this case to alcohol, then you haven't been rescued from anything. And so I'm not a fan of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, let me say, I realize that there are people that have been saved in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's wonderful. God loves them. There are people that get saved in really, really horrible churches, too. Because God loves the people. But the idea that AA and their belief that any higher power will suffice and their refusal to say that Jesus Christ is the only answer disqualifies them from being biblically correct. And if they're not biblically correct, they're doing more damage rather than less. So um, I realize that we live in an addict mentality in this world, in this country especially. And people think that's cruel. The reality is all they can do is help clean you up for a minute. And that's why the recidivism rate is so high among alcoholics, drug addicts, gamblers. It's high because only Jesus can heal. So Anonymous, that's my answer. And those of you who will send me emails, save your time. Um, Just kind of deal with what I said. Is it biblically correct or not? And if I'm wrong biblically, then you can correct me. Send me an email. But if you can't, demonstrate, then reconsider your position. You know, people think it's mean-spirited to say that AA is not biblically correct and Christians should not be involved in it. I'll tell you what's even worse. We've got a whole bunch of 
churches, Christian churches, that have glorified the 12-step program and all they've done is named it something else. But it's exactly the same. Celebrate recovery, there's others. If you've been born again, you've been delivered. And all you need is to hang out with Jesus, and you're going to be okay. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Tim. He says, why wasn't Daniel with his friends in Daniel chapter 3 when they were thrown into the furnace? Tim, uh, this is one of those things. I, I like to call it divine design. This is one of those things where God was painting a picture for us. Um, to, to understand the picture, we need to remember who Daniel was. Daniel was Daniel the Beloved. The Apostle John in the New Testament, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I love that John named himself that. But the idea is the beloved Daniel. He's the one, along with John in the New Testament, who got all of the great revelations about the end of time. Why? Because God loved them. They loved God. And so Daniel isn't in chapter 3 because his three friends, uh, their Babylonian name, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, they represent Israel going through the Great Tribulation. The fire turned up seven times hotter than normal. The Great Tribulation will be a time of persecution against Jacob as has never been before. And in that particular case, uh, when they were thrown into the fire, Jesus was there with them in the same way Jesus will be protecting Israel. Jesus will be protecting individual Jews during the second half of the Great Tribulation. And he's going to protect them because he promised that he's going to take them on, on, like on the wings of an eagle. He's going to protect them. They're actually going to be preserved in the last three and a half years when the Antichrist, because they will refuse to bow down and worship him. He's going to take them to the rock city of Petra. It's in modern day Jordan. And there he, they can be protected. In fact, anybody can be protected there. There's only one way in, one way out, and it's very narrow. And so, so it's impossible for an army to go in and, and get people. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they represent the Jews who will go through the Great Tribulation. Daniel is a picture of the Christians who are not at the scene of the Great Tribulation. So this is a very intentional picture that supports a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Daniel, the beloved, just like you and I are the beloved of God, we are the, the bride of Christ. We will not be here during the great tribulation. We will not see the revelation of the man that we call the Antichrist. We're going to be taken to be with Jesus. We're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. And we will be with him. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 says, away from the scene of the trial that comes upon all of those who live upon the earth. We're not going to be here. Well, Daniel is a picture of that. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a picture of Israel going through but being preserved by um, by God during the Great Tribulation. One of the great, great lines in that is when um, Nebuchadnezzar is getting really, really mad. He says, basically, do you know who I am? I can do this or I'll do that. And... and um, the kids, the young, they're not kids at this point, but they, they, they say, well, you know, our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship the idol. That's what's going to happen with the Jews. Here is a question from, let me see, do I have a call here? Oop, I don't. Okay. Diane says, I'm getting hard questions today from, at least I won't get I'll get angry emails. Diane wants to know, are Mormons Christians? Um, generally speaking, no. Now, I qualified it, Diane, um, because I think it's important to understand that God has a remnant everywhere. And there are people who are active Mormons who have no idea what the goofy Mormon doctrines or theology teach. They hear Jesus died for our sins, hear the word salvation, saved by the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and, and that's all they know. 
And I can promise you there are some people going to Mormon churches who would identify as Mormons um, who we're going to find out are going to make it heaven. Having said that, the overwhelming majority, when I say overwhelming, um, really overwhelming majority of Mormons are not going to get into heaven because they're not born again. Their Jesus is unable to save. The spirit brother of Lucifer can't save anybody from their sins. Only God can forgive sins. And since um, Lucifer their, the, and Jesus and their theology are sort of spiritual brothers, um, they have a Jesus that is unqualified, incapable of sinning. Or, I mean, incapable of saving because, because they would be sinners. Jesus has to be the creator God. In the beginning, God, that was Jesus who said, let there be light. And there was. And of course, Mormon theology uh, denies that. That's why, Diane, Mormonism is officially, by definition, a cult. They mess with the um, nature, the character of who Jesus is. And that's why Mormons aren't going to be saved. The sad thing about it is that the people that are deceived, even even if they're going to scrape by and get them, all they have to do is open their Bibles and check it out for themselves. They may make it to heaven, but they're missing out on so much here. All they can do is try really, really hard. And of course, trying really hard doesn't do anybody any good. Only the power of God can transform. So, for the most part, Diane Mormons are not Christians. Mormon theology certainly is not Christian, um, but there are a few. You know, I mentioned, uh, I had a question, it was a couple of weeks ago now, uh, about Glenn Beck. Uh, Glenn Beck, uh, who has been through a lot of things in his life um, many years ago now, um, his wife, who is a Mormon, um, took him to church. And, and he became uh, active in the Mormon church. Um, and I listen to him from time to time. And he talks a lot about Jesus. And, and, and it appears to me he has no idea what the goofy theology is. Now, that's on him. He's accountable to find out what's true. But he's an example of a man that I would say, after listening to him talk about Jesus Christ, um, he's even identified him. As the, I always say, the Son of God and God the Son, he, he hasn't used that terminology, but he's identified him as God. Um, there's an example of a man who might be a born-again Christian, um, even in the wrong place. So I hope that helps. George, I'm going to wait on your question until we come back from the break, because it could take me a little bit of time. Uh, here's an anonymous one. Uh, what happens in a marriage where the wife has refused any intimate contact at all, how long am I supposed to wait? Um, you, you know, this is this is a situation that really needs counseling. You need to go. If, if uh, You know, I always assume that the people who are listening to this program are, are Christians. If you're Christian, you need to be in a church. If you're in a church, you've got pastoral counseling that you can go and take advantage of. And this is a situation where you and your wife both need to be in counseling, and it shouldn't be an option. If you are believers, pleasing God is more important than pleasing self. And if you're not uh, real Christians, if that's not the case, then you need to, to, to share the gospel with your wife. But, but your wife is, if, if, if things are as you claim in this question, your wife is defrauding you. She's withholding herself from you. Um, and, and I would say, how long are you supposed to wait? You're supposed to wait. You're supposed to live your life for Christ, not thinking about what you're missing out on, but, but, but running to Jesus and letting his grace then be sufficient in your life. But this is also a situation that has to be resolved in the home. Because this is not a marriage that honors the Lord, not not even a little bit. You can be the nicest people in the world. You can say, "Well, it's just one thing. I don't want to do this," or, or, or you're, in your case, you know, this is what I'm missing out on. Um, but but this is not a marriage that honors the Lord. And until the husband and the wife will agree together to agree with God, this is who we are. I'm not my own. I'm bought with the price. 
The wife should say, in this case, my body's not my own. My body is intended by the Lord to please my husband. Same thing is true in reverse. The husband's body is not his own. But this is just something that has to be settled. And far too many people are afraid to to, to, to breach the subject. Um, and and I, I just don't understand why. Husbands and wives need to talk. My next question, the one from George, is going to be uh, a similar. He wants to know how to increase his spiritual intimacy with his wife. So Anonymous, stay on the, on the line throughout the break, and I'll get to that. It's something that you really need to take advantage of, and you need to do it right away. This isn't something you can just kind of let go because it's easier than to deal with it. It's it's an issue that is depriving both of you of the fullness that God has for you. It's a marriage that breaks the Lord's heart. And what you need to do is run to him. So, Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. Well, I don't hear music, so I know there it is. After yesterday's technical difficulties, I was a little worried. Uh, we got 30 minutes left in the Tuesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585. Phones are quiet. Here's the question from George. I said I'd hold over to this uh, side of the break. George wants to know, how can I increase my spiritual intimacy with my wife. George, write down this one word, but write it down three times. Word or Bible. It's the word, the word, the word. Be in the word. You and your wife ought to be reading together. It's something that ought to be a a, 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 a a pattern. I'm always careful of saying something that you know you got to do it every day because life happens. But it's something that needs to be a part of your everyday life. And you need to read together. It'll it'll generate such wonderful conversations. I mean, the Holy Spirit is is searching both hearts while you're doing it, and in the process, I'm sorry, in the process, He's knitting your hearts together, and just be in the Word together, uh, pray together. Um, you need to to really invest in your marriage. And you do that by spending time. You can't do it on the run. You can't wake up the last minute and always be busy and always be going. You know, um, I would think, and it's just expectations we humans have, the older I get, the more time I'd have. That's not the case. The older I am getting, the busier I am. And Paul and I really have to fight for our time. It's so easy every day. It could be, oh, no, I got early. I got several appointments. I got this. I got that. Paula is running around like crazy. She's always got things to do. Um, but, but we, we got to fight for this time. And, and that's the way you're going to do it. The Holy Spirit will knit your hearts together. How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? Amos 3.3. 3. And husband and wife, unless they agree together to agree with God, there's always going to be friction. Paula and I are very, very different. She does things one way, I do things another way, and and it would be really easy to always be butting heads, but that's all flesh. So we decided a long time, a very long time ago, we decided that we were going to agree to agree with Jesus. Her opinion matters not at all. My opinion matters not at all. The only opinion that matters in our household is Jesus's. And the only place you're going to get his opinion on things or his direction on things is in the Word of God. So this has to be a part of your life. Now, George, it, it also means, obviously, that you need to spend time in the Word and your wife needs to spend time in the Word. Uh, Paula is in the Bible all the time. Uh, I, I'm, I'm in the in the Word, you know, apart from the things that I'm studying. I do three studies a week. Uh, so um, you've got to be in the Word 
just between you and the Lord as well. And you got to have your own prayer time just between you and the Lord. But a husband and a wife, this relationship is so special to God. And clearly it's special to you. You want to increase your spiritual intimacy with your wife. The way you do that is in the Word. You read to her. Let her read to you. Do it out loud. Pick the same passage of Scripture. Um, sometimes it can be a whole chapter. Other times it'll be, I don't know, just a section in the Scriptures. What you need to do is just hear the Word. You read it out loud. She reads it out loud. And then I promise you the Holy Spirit is going to provoke some question and some discussion. And those discussions become really, really important. Now, I think most of you know, if you've been listening to this program any length of time, that Paula is the one who reads to me. I'm visually impaired. And so she reads to me. But she's read to me so much that I can hear an inflection in her voice, the tone that she's using, if there's something wrong, if there's something bothering her, if she has a question about a passage. And I can stop and say, well, well, why did you say it like that? Or are you struggling with this? Or is there anything I can help you with? Do you have anything you want to ask me? It's not like I'm her Bible teacher. I mean, I am because I'm her pastor. But um, these are just organic discussions that happen. And it really keeps things from ever getting out of control. It really does. And so you do that in the Word, and then you pray together. It doesn't have to be long, drawn-out prayers. Again, we live a busy life. But, but there ought to be prayer all the time. And I promise you the Holy Spirit will then increase your spiritual intimacy. And the, and the results, the fruit will be wonderful. Now, George, you don't say whether or not there are children in the home, but um, your kids will notice a difference. Everybody will notice the difference. Most importantly, you will walk with the joy of the Lord. And, you know, uh, the, the idea in, in a home that, well, the wife has her things that she likes to do and the husband has his things that he likes to do, men are men and women are women, if, if that cuts out your time in the Word of God, then you're going to continue to struggle. It's that simple. So that's how you do it. And let the Spirit of God not only knit your hearts together, but correct you, help you examine your heart, help you stay in the middle of God's will, and you're going to find that everything is better. Paul is my best friend. She's actually very fun to be around. She's funny. That doesn't mean she doesn't do things that drive me crazy. Now, compared to me, I do everything that drives her crazy. But you see, when your best friend is doing those things, being in the Word together will make you understand just how blessed your relationship really and truly is. So, George, that's the way to do it. And there's no other way. You can't negotiate intimacy. It just happens. It's organic. But it comes as a gift from the Holy Spirit when you're submitted to His will. Thank you for the question. Here's a question that came in from... Um, Robert. Uh, he says, I love the story of the prodigal son. However, I really don't understand the point of the story of the other brother who was upset. Could you help me understand that part of the parable? Yeah, Robert, a couple of things. One, the brother was just as lost as the prodigal. Now, on the outside, and this is going to sound very familiar. On the outside, he looked like he was obedient, but he was grumbling under his breath. Everything the father had him do, he did because, well, I'm under authority. I have to do it. And the, the prodigal son, the younger son, well, he was more honest. He just wanted to rebel. He made his intentions known. It's interesting that the father allowed him to do it. Father didn't have to. But remember, he used to picture the father in heaven. And our Father in Heaven lets us do what we choose to do. We deal with the consequences, but He lets us do it. And of course, the prodigal is pretty straightforward. He came to his own mind, it says, and realized that, you know, even the servants in my Father's house are better off than I am. And then he goes home, and the other brother, who I think is you know, in a worse spiritual condition, the other brother, finally, his true heart is revealed. 
at his anger over his father's treatment compared to what he's doing for his brother. This this son of yours who, who squandered your living and or squandered your resources with riotous living, did all these horrible things. I've been here trying to be good and doing my best, doing everything you told me to do. And and see, his heart was revealed. Now, if we were looking at that family from the outside looking in. Robert, we decide, well, there was a good son and a bad son. Both of them were lost. Both of them were lost. And it took God's forgiveness, the father's forgiveness for his wayward son to bring out the hostility in the other brother's heart. Again, that's the most dangerous place. A lot of times as Christians, we're going through the motions. We're trying really hard to be good or to do good. We want people to think well of us. And so we're trying to impress. We're trying to do the best we can. And yet our hearts are so far from God. Well, that was the case with the brother of the prodigal. And as I've mentioned many times in our church, Robert, I believe with all of my heart that we who think we're okay in the church are the easiest prey for the devil. We're in the most dangerous situation. We come to church and we hear the Bible being taught. We hear a passage of Scripture. We think, oh yeah, my wife needs to hear that. Or my friend needs to hear that. Or those people in the next row, they need to hear this. But we think we're okay. The brother thought he was okay. And his heart was farther away from God at that moment than his brother's heart. Instead of rejoicing over somebody who gets saved. Now, here's a good test. Robert, this is a good test. If you've ever had somebody in your life that just really, really bugged you. In fact, maybe you you could say, if you were honest, I even hate that person. And then you hear that that person gets saved. And he or she is going to be in heaven forever and ever. How do you respond? You know, the people in my life, and I have no one in this world that I hate. No one that I'm holding unforgiveness toward. But I know there's a bunch of people out there that hate me because of the way I teach the Word. And and you know what? When I hear that they got saved or that they repented, I'm so thrilled. I'm so thrilled for them. And that's exactly what the brother of the prodigal couldn't be. He couldn't be happy that his brother was back. That he was once again a part of the family. He was self-consumed, worried about himself. I'm the good one. You know, the, the, in, in, in the Jewish culture, the, the older son would get two-thirds of the inheritance. So he was already in a privileged position. And that's why the father responded to him the way he did. Don't you know your son who was lost has now been found? You, my son, have always been with me. Everything that I have is yours. Instead of being able to rejoice over that, he was focused on what he didn't have. And then when he saw the father throw in the party for the returning son, that was really what it took to reveal his heart. We Christians who can't be happy when really good things happen to bad people. If we can't be happy, if we can't praise the Lord, then we have had our hearts revealed to us as well. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Daryl. Daryl wants to know how can I balance occasional drinking? My wife doesn't want me to drink at all because of the kids, but I think it's okay. Um, Daryl, write this verse down. Ephesians five twenty five. Read it ten times. It'll take a minute. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Now, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk out of, it'll appear maybe like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Um, moderate drinking is not a sin. But this is your wife, your partner. She seems to be aware that your children are watching you. And if they watch you drink, when they're tempted to drink, they're going to think it's okay. Dad does it all the time. And your wife seems to be tuned in. She's not trying to ruin your life. 
What she's trying to do is ask you to give yourself up. So I'm just going to say it point blank, Daryl. You are in sin if you will not stop drinking. If the only reason in the world is your wife doesn't want you to, that's all you should need. That's all you should need. And that's the best use of our liberty, our Christian freedom, to give it up. If we'll do that, Romans 13, 14, anything not of faith is sin. I promise you, every time now your wife wants you to stop drinking, every time you drink, you've got this conflict because the Holy Spirit is telling you don't do it. Now, when you got married, it is likely that you promised to honor your wife, to cherish her. Uh, In the vows that I write for the weddings that I do, to give yourself up for her the way Christ loved the church. Now's the time when those vows are put to the test. Do you love your wife enough to deny yourself an occasional drink? Do you love your wife enough to thank her because she's that concerned about the effect your drinking might have on your children? And to me, it is completely disingenuous. You know, we've uh, been around so long that you know, we'll see families fall apart. You know, kids go out and start making bad choices. They'll get drunk or do drugs. And and, and the parents say, well, we, we brought them to the church. I can't believe that they'd make these decisions. But the whole time there was drinking in the home or there was occasional marijuana smoking in the home or, you know, just, just there wasn't a godly environment. Why are we surprised when our kids go out and do the same kind of things that we're guilty of doing? As the spiritual head of your household, Daryl, what you really need to do is set an example of Christ-likeness. You need to be able to say, like the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You ought to be able to say that to your children. Now, immediately, I'm sorry, I had to cough immediately we think, well, well, don't I get to have any fun? Here's what I can promise you, Daryl. When you're surrendered to the will of God for your life, you won't even care. You'll never miss the things that you don't get to do because the, the intimacy you'll have with the Lord, the intimacy that will, will, will be established in your home will be so much richer than anything that you ever were asked to give up. That's what happens when you're serving the Lord. So you might think it's okay. But is it really in light of the vows that you took? Now, if you got married before you were a believer and you say, well, I didn't believe in all that stuff. As a believer now, you got to believe in that stuff. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her, putting her needs your wife's needs ahead of your own. And if you think for a moment that God won't honor that and bless you abundantly as a result, then you really don't know him well enough. So it's pretty simple. Thank you, Daryl. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um... Anonymous says, how are drugs a sin, but drinking is not? Um, Well, I just talked about that a little bit. Drinking can be a sin. Um, Getting drunk is a sin. Um, Moderate drinking uh, is not condemned in the Bible. So that's that's the answer. Drugs is condemned. Pharmakia is the Greek word. Um, it, it's it's under sorcery and, and but, but really it's any mind altering substances. And here's the thing: when you're um, smoking marijuana, and people think marijuana is just an herb, it's no damn. The, the, the potency of marijuana is such now that the moment you ingest it, the moment you're high, the comparison term would be you're drunk. People say, no, I'm just mellow. No, your mind has been altered. And you can have a beer, and your mind's not altered. Now, if you drink two or three, then the situation changes. But drugs are a sin, and anonymous, I'm going to say to you what I say to my church all the time. 
If God says it's sin, you have to agree. And so just don't do it. The person says, well, I can smoke marijuana. If people get drunk, what's the difference? Well, God says don't do those things, either of them. But you see, this isn't about what other people do. This is about you and the Lord. Romans 14, 23 says anything not of faith is sin. And it sounds to me as though the Holy Spirit's already dealing with you on this issue. If you're going to be defensive, say, well, well, I just smoke marijuana. It helps me relax or helps me, me, me uh, get to sleep at night. Um, you already know the Holy Spirit's dealing with you on this issue. So the question really, Anonymous, is how much of you are you going to give to Jesus Christ? How much do you trust him? And I can promise you that you'll sleep better, you'll rest better, there'll be less stress when you're in the will of God than anything you can ever imagine just by smoking marijuana. I don't know what drugs you're talking about, but this is such a simple, no-brainer question, Anonymous. It's a sin because God says it is. You know, I get the same kind of response from people who are living together, not married, having sex. And they'll say, well, but we love, love each other. What's the harm? Well, the harm is God's not with you. That you're shutting God out from being active in your life. The Jesus who promised you living water, promised you the abundant life. You're shutting him out. And, and honestly, Anonymous, you can't hang out with Jesus if you're doing drugs, it's that simple. If you're getting drunk, you also can't hang out with Jesus. If you're sexually immoral, you also can't hang out with him. You're on your own. And that's when trouble happens. So this is a question of your faith. You know, I was talking to somebody uh, today. I'm, I'm doing a Bible study tomorrow night. I was just getting ready. We're in Leviticus chapter 23 uh, about the feasts and the festivals. Um, but one of the, one of the things that you've got to remember in, in the Exodus wilderness uh, when when these laws came to Moses, um, millions of people left Egypt and wandered for 40 years in the wilderness until an entire generation was dead because they didn't believe God. He promised that they would never enter, enter Canaan, enter into the promises. And they didn't. So that whole generation died. We're told they died because of unbelief. Well, for you not to give up using drugs or getting drunk or give up a relationship that's sexually immoral. Remember, God's the one who makes those rules, not you, not me. Um, That's unbelief. That's unbelief. So that's the answer to your question. Let me see if i got time for another question. I think I do. Joy says, oh, when a random accident happens, how can we say God is in control? Well, uh, he's in control and he knew it was going to happen, but he didn't cause it. So God's in control. And what seems to us to be random really isn't random at all. Just this past Sunday, I was doing a Bible study on Paul, um, giving sort of his defense uh, before his accusers. And the people trying to kill him. And God just happened to the people in the right place at the right time to make sure that Paul gets away safely. God wasn't done with Paul. God was the one in control, even though it looked like everything was out of control. Well, I know, Joe, that when there's a random accident that happens, um, it doesn't look like God's in control. Our first question usually is, God, why did you let this happen? Why me or why them? And again, I understand the grief. I understand the heartbreak. So too does God. But the fact that God didn't stop that accident presupposes that it's his job to make sure nothing bad happens to us. And that's simply not the case. Nowhere are we told that God is going to keep us from bad things happening. Jesus said in this world that you will have tribulation. Thankfully, not the great tribulation, but you will have tribulation. He said people will hate you and they will insult you on my account. They hated me first. Sometimes those things happen and it appears that God's not in control. But he's always in control. So what seems random to us is not random at all. Joy, we've had um, um, six years ago, we had an eight-year-old little boy in a truck with his family. 
and uh, somebody ran into them, whatever the reason. And um, the whole family, they were bruised and bumped and all that stuff, but but the little boy died. Um, just so random. Um, as horrible as that was, mom and dad and brother and sister, they've learned just how in control God is. Hearts hurt. Our hearts are broken. But God is in control. So I hope that makes sense to you. Just, we have no right to expect that nothing bad is going to happen to us. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. We've got uh, just a little bit more than a minute left in today's program. Uh, Thank you for indulging me with my cough. And uh, yesterday with the technical difficulties, we're doing the best that we can every day. Uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Tomorrow we'll be back um, at 4 o'clock on AM 6 to the Word. And then, of course, Thursday, Paula will be here on the date edition. Uh, I pray that you're all remembering that Jesus is the object of our worship. Don't get so busy we leave him behind. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back here tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.